morning, brothers and sisters. As you notice, I don't have my laptop today, so you get a break from me. All right, so that's, uh, that's good. So we have uh, Brother Tony, who is uh, visiting our church. On and off, he visits our church when he's working in the area. Uh, he didn't volunteer. I actually asked him. And given that I'm the only person uh, doing preaching during the season of Acts, it, it is a great treat to have him. Uh, he has pastored uh, church in the past. And again, he didn't volunteer. He didn't raise his hand. I've listened to his sermons, and he's uh, pretty much been vetted by the men of Acts. And he's, uh, uh, he's a man of God. So uh, Brother Tony uh, is going to preach uh, where I left off last time. Welcome, brother. Jesus get by without an iPad, <laughs> microphones and everything else, and glasses. Um, huh? no, no Twitter, yes, and still got the word out. <laughs> Today we're going to continue on looking at uh, Romans, and uh, it was sort of funny when Brother Gerardo asked me, I thought I had actually preached on this before, and I'm like, oh, this will be a snap, I'll just pull up an old one, go review it, and touch it up, and then I look and I had so that made for a good week. But it's always good. I think Brother Gerardo will tell you that studying for a sermon enriches us as much or more than you in looking at it. Because it makes us look at things and think about not only what does it mean, but what is it to do to us. Because every passage speaks to Christ, but every passage should elicit a response from us. Although, I mean, God's Word is complete, everything. Now, you may have to take a bigger section. Numbers is a tough one to find how it elicits a response. Sometimes it's staying awake to read it because it just goes on. But there's a reason, right? Numbers is important because it tells us the importance of just everything. Because even just the numbers of people and the things like that. So today we're going to continue in Romans 11, 11 and 12, two verses. Um, you might find that I'm going to go a slight different direction than you will find with some people. Because this is one of the passages that starts a big conversation of what of Israel. And people have many views about what's going to happen with Israel, right? They have all different views. And I'll mention a few of those because I'm going to go there. But I think there's much more we can take from this that we can apply to our lives today. So if you're able to stand, uh, we're going to read Romans 11, 11 and 12. And I have the ESV here. I tend to use the King James, but I have the ESV and it's up here. And thank you, Brother Kelvin, for I sent him my notes yesterday, and he's never seen my notes before, so he had to dig through that, so we will get along, right? So God's Word says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion means? Maybe see. I like to open in prayer because it's important as we go into God's Word. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can look at your Word, that you've given it to us, that we would take it seriously, that we would see how it tells us of you and it applies to us, even as we look at a historical event and the things that you have done in your people. I pray as I proclaim your word that it would be clear, and that those places that I'm not, that you would uh, make it clear, 
those places I may stumble and uh, say something I don't even catch myself on, that you would make that corrected in people's hearing, Lord. But that we would leave here today changed. That your word is meant to change us, not just to take in information, not just something to assimilate and say, well, I've done that passage and move on, but it is to change us. And I pray that um, you would help to speak through me, that we would be changed by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I titled today's passage, Kingdom Expansion. A beautiful thing, but how does it affect you today? And just a reminder, because it's always good, and I tend to do this when I'm preaching on a passage, to go back a little bit about what we talked about last week. I'm going to give a short synopsis, because this all ties in together. There is a danger with exegetical preaching that sometimes, and people do this, you get stuck on the two verses we're looking at today. But those two verses are in context of the ones that follow, that follow the ones we've read, and the Bible as a whole. So, we looked at last week of the effects of unbelief. And this is important, as uh, Paul is today going to move to a new section to speak to the Gentiles. And we go into farther on, and what you'll hear from Gerardo next week, Lord willing, is that we're going to see how this affects the Gentiles. And as a reminder, at the time of this writing, when we read a passage and we see these words, that they're basically speaking of two peoples. It talks about Jews and Gentiles, but basically that's Jews in the world. So there is this category of the Jews in Israel, in this case, when he talks, and then there's the Gentiles, which is everyone else. I don't know everyone here, but I think we're all the Gentiles, right? I'm not sure if there's anybody here Jewish. But so be it. But we are the Gentiles, the world. But we saw the effects, and does anybody remember what these were? On, on Tuesday, Gerardo asked, and I have to admit, I had forgotten. I, I blame old age, but I'd forgotten. <laughs> and you can use that excuse if you like. But what were those effects of this unbelief? But there was unrighteousness. There was callousness. And there was a sense of the blessings becoming a curse. And keep in mind, while these were pointed at the Jews, these effects are not constrained to them. Thus, these are all things we can probably see in our lives and the world around us. If we sit and think of that, we can see how at times we have unbelief and how that unbelief affects our lives and causes us to, to go to unrighteousness or callousness. Or sometimes we see blessings being a curse. But Paul now starts a new section to speak to the Gentiles. And he begins to speak of the expansion of the kingdom by the inclusion of the Gentiles even if at this time at the cost to the Jews. You know, we sometimes think of God and we, we wonder why he does things, but our God is a God of means. And what I mean by that is God uses actions. You know, God could miraculously come in, change us, and we would be 100% sanctified at one spot. But God has decided to work through means. He brings people to himself by means, and in this case, he brings the Gentiles in by allowing the Jews to stumble. He used their, and when I say allow to stumble, and then some people talk about their hardening, but there's nothing unnatural here, because the Jews have always been that way. When God chose them, he knew that. And so we want to see that, that he's a God of means, that to, and he uses those means to accomplish his purpose. You know, and we can look at this and go, oh, I just don't get why. I don't think that's right. But guess what? God can do what God wants to do. That's a really tough one for us, because everyone wants an answer. And I've been online, and you say something, and they go, well, God annihilated this whole group of people, including men, women, and children. 
And I'll admit, that's discomforting. But that's God, and God knows why. He doesn't say, I can do that. But God can do anything he wants because he is God. He's not constrained by anyone but himself. And so God, Paul begins to speak to the Gentiles and how they got where they were. And again, it was not because God saw something wonderful in them. Same with the Jews. They were chosen because of, not chosen because of something in them. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were in more number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In Deuteronomy 9.6 it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Nothing new. He knew in the beginning in choosing them. They were stubborn, but he chose them, for, I believe, for that purpose. This all fits his plan for the kingdom purposes that he has. God did not pursue, though, when we look at the Gentiles, he didn't pursue them some, like some lost lover, as you see in so many worship songs today, these more modern, that God is pursuing as he wants us. And, and I know you're trying to avoid him, but uh, he's, you know, and they're making it tough on God. No, God chooses as he chooses. He doesn't pursue us like a lost lover, like, oh, I, you know, I just can't get by up here without those Gerardo or myself or anyone else. i got to do something. No, that's not what God is doing. It's all part of his plan, and his ultimate plan to graft in all nations is what he did in allowing the Jews to stumble. His plan from the beginning was to call a tr people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and this is how he does that. And then ultimately, and we'll touch on this a little more, sometime in the future, he'll do the same to the Jews, as we'll see in verse 12, in having the Gentiles be used to draw them in. In the coming verses, Paul will delve in more into the Gentile salvation, and he starts again in verses 11 and 12, to deal with how God worked in the Jews to bring about the salvation of them, to expand his kingdom. And a little short note here, and there may be not many people have heard of this, but it's what I call expansion theology. There are many that will claim that if you don't see the nation of Israel as this separate, disparate people that have a special calling of God, will be called just because they're Jews, that you're removing them. And they call that replacement theology. But the truth is, that's farther from the question here. We're expanding. God expands his kingdom by grafting in the Gentiles, by grafting you in. Allowing the Jews to stumble so that you could come to God and go from there. That's what God did. He expands his kingdom. But let us not simply think this passage is only about the Jews and the Gentiles of the time. But I hope to show a lesson or two we are to take from this for us today. But I want to stop here for a minute, and I said I would do this. Is that many commentaries, you pick up a commentary, they spend a lot of time on what is the future of Israel. And I don't think that's bad. Every time we read God's Word, everything is important. But I think we can get so bogged down is, in it that we forget, how does this passage work in me today? What is it supposed to elicit from me? How am I supposed to leave here changed? But I do want to give some insight, because I'm not sure where everyone's at, theologically or understanding of Israel. 
And so I want to look at a number of views of, of Israel from what we call the eschatological views. Everyone understand the word eschatological? It means end times. And I'm going to break them down in categories, and someone may go, well, I know someone from that view that believes slightly different, and that's true. There's all sorts of variations in everything. But these are a general overview, and Ken Gentry is a, a guy have, that I've read, and he writes quite a bit. But he states this in a general, again, as various eschatological views, there are variations. This is an overview. And they also want to see this in light of a passage which Gerardo will cover later in 11.25 through 26a, which says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. So as a little background on some views, there's the premillennialist or dispensationalist view. And by the way, they're not exactly the same. There's variations in there as well. But they often see all Israel will be saved as promising a future national and geopolitical restoration of Israel's kingdom. And again, there may be some variations, but that's the general view. And then generally, the amillennialist will see this as signifying that the church fulfills God's promise to become the true Israel. And then lastly, the post-millennialist view in general sees here the promise of the world conversion is finally including ethnic Israel herself. And again, let me stress here, this view is not saying that this salvation comes because they are Jews, but that salvation by grace through faith, as it has always been, will be brought about within the community of the Jews. It's a work that he will do. And that's what we see also in the verses we just looked at in Romans 11, 11 with the Gentiles. And we'll see in verse 12 as the Jews come back to himself. And so again, while I think this is an important subject, because it is God's word, I don't want to get bogged down here in this today. But I want to look at these verses and then see what we can take away and leave here today with. And so I want to look, and I'm going to come back to these, and it may be worded slightly different, but I want to look at three things we want to look at today after we go over the verses, and they are, first of all, we're to put our pride aside. If you're like me, that's a tough one. We all struggle with pride. It, it varies on what we're prideful of, but we struggle with pride. But I want to bring this to a spiritual aspect we want to look at. Because Paul wants to make sure that in this passage the Gentiles don't get prideful. Well, yeah, those Jews weren't good enough, so you took us because we're the good guys. Now he goes, no. I stumbled to bring you all in, and by the way, I haven't given up on my people. Then we want to look at our lives and see if they are enticing to those outside the church. Just as the Gentiles were brought in, it says actually to make the Jews jealous, as he saw their blessings and the things that were going on in them take place. And then lastly, I want us to see that our salvation is precious. Not simply that we get a jail, out of, a get out of hell card. But it's precious to us that we understand our salvation. And so let's begin by just doing an overview of these passages in Romans 11, 11 and 12. And let me read them one more time. And so I ask that they stumble in order that they might fall. By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? And so verse 11 sets the theme of the next section when he moves into speaking to the, Jew, to the Gentiles. But it was to say that the, 
The stumble of the Jews was not final or fatal. It says they stumbled. They didn't fall. There's this, and that was what we saw in the passage, right, in Deuteronomy? That was where they came at it at. God chose them because they were stubborn. And God was not surprised. You know, God doesn't sit up there and see, see you do something, or in this case, see the Jews do something, and go, oh man, I didn't know they were going to do that. I wish I'd looked into the future. No, that's not God. He's, he knows that beforehand. He knows exactly who he chose. And so it sets this picture, and we again see this isn't a final falling of the Jews. But the nation at some point, and we saw that in verses 25 and 26, would come to God. Excuse me. And as I previously mentioned, they will be saved, not because they are Jews, but that God will work in their hearts so that they come to Him by grace and faith. There are those that see, sort of, and they won't necessarily say this outright, because it obviously doesn't sound scriptural, but they'll think that there are two ways to be saved. There's you can come to grace, come to faith by grace, and believe. Or you can be Jewish. No, God works one way. It's by grace through faith. So when he speaks of the Jews coming, it's because he works in a people. I mean, I again, there may be disagreements on how Israel works. But I think we can all say that God has done something among the Jewish people to protect them. They're a small nation. Even that we saw in Deuteronomy, right? He chose them because they were what? The smallest. They were sort of insignificant. They could have been wiped out in no time at all. But they aren't. But that's not what saves them. It's just God has a place in his heart for them. But they are only going to come to him in one way. The advantage we have as Reformed believers, we know that God calls them. It's nothing in them. And we'll come back to that because that's part of our finding our salvation is precious. And so that will be glorious because it tells us that in verse 12. That how much more to see this fullness when they're called back. So why did God allow this stumbling of the Jews? It was to be used to bring the Gentiles into the family of God. The salvation of the Gentiles was to provoke the Jews to emulation. In Romans 11.14 it says, In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Also, we see that in verse 12 when it talks of the fullness to come and the greater blessing this will be to the Gentiles. And let me add here, the stumble of the Jews was real. And while used to bring the Gentiles in was also a reason for their rejection of God. We saw this last week. This idea of their stubbornness causing their unrighteousness, their callousness, and missing out on the blessing. But God's using, he saw this, it's the means he uses to bring the Gentiles, to graft us into this tree. But it's real. The Jews rejected Christ. In Acts 13, 44 through 48, Acts 18, 6, and Acts 28, 23 through 28. It's real. They rejected Christ. But let's not forget, while, they, while in one side we would go, they should have had every chance. They had, man, they had the Torah. They should have seen Jesus coming. How many people with the gospel staring them in the face reject Christ, even as Gentiles? It can be clearly proclaimed, and you can say something, and people have, there are beliefs out there that are way out there. I mean, if you ever look into Mormonism, there are some fairly strange things that go on in their understanding of how it all works. And people go, well, that makes sense. 
But you give them the gospel, and they go, oh, you're crazy, man. No. Have you ever talked to people with some of the things they believe? They're the craziest things you've seen, and you give them a simple gospel, and they laugh at you like you're like two, two heads. But that's because God hasn't opened their eyes. And so we see that God used the pridefulness, and as we saw last week, again, the unrighteousness and callousness as a means to work with the Gentiles and to use them to eventually bring Jews back to the fold. And let me insert here, though, that the fall or the stumbling of the Jews did not cause the salvation of the Gentiles, but gave opportunity for the inclusion of the Gentiles. It was the opportunity, the gospel, to go out. We see it in Acts as the gospel sort of spreads. It starts among the Jewish community and moves out to the world. As Paul sort of says, you know, I, I'm, giving, I'm not giving up on you in one sense, but he goes, I'm called to the Gentiles. That he goes out. And the Jews' stumbling led to that. In verse 12, Paul builds on verse 11 to remind, again, that this is not final. In doing so, he wants to make sure the Gentiles do not get prideful of their ingrafting. Because he talks about how they come in because of their stumbling, but he quickly comes back and says, but how much greater will it be when the, my people come back to me and believe? There's not time for them to get prideful. I mean, they, if he stopped there and didn't put verse 12, they could easily go... We're the new people. That's why we call it expansion theology. We've expanded, God has expanded his kingdom to go out much farther than simply just one people's, which again was his plan from the beginning. And while Israel's loss is great, there is still a remnant, as you would have seen when Gerardo did Romans 11.5. And if the fall of the Jews brought riches to the Gentiles, so would it bring riches to the Jews in the future. And I want to stop here for a minute, because the word riches is sort of interesting. When you hear the word riches, what do you think about? We think about money or some gain. But when I looked at the word, and I looked at a couple other commentaries, it was interesting that the word actually also can mean wealthy. Now, again, I say wealthy, and you think of money. But this word wealthy can be used as, in sort of a sense of quantity. So you could read, the fall of the Jews brought a wealth of Gentiles. So that, and so it will be in the future, because he used the idea of bringing riches. So this wealth, that the stumbling of the Jews brought in a, a lot, a quantity of Gentiles, but so it will also bring in a quantity of Jews at some point in the future. And this, we, as we saw in verse 11, is via jealousy. A good jealousy is they see the Gentiles' relationship with the blessings from God through Christ and are provoked to believe. Romans 10.9 says, But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you, make you angry. I mean, what did the Jews think of the Gentiles? That they were pagans. And think about that on our end. What do we call the world? It's outside the church. We call them pagans. It's foolish. And he used that. But this was the plan. But sadly, often Gentiles, then and now, did not do so. They didn't look at the Jews as, as his people. They, they got prideful. You know, I've often got, and I've seen this, and it comes from some people's view of end times and such, but often claiming that the Jews killed Jesus. Guess what? The Romans were complicit. But let me put something more personal. How many of you were complicit 
in the death of Christ. If you're a believer, every one of you. Christ hung on the cross because of our sin. We're all complicit, Jews and Gentiles, in his death. And so we're not to be negative to the Jews, but we're not to build them up as some special chosen saved race no matter what happens. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that in the future there will be a great revival among the nation of Israel, and many will come to a true knowledge of Jesus and his gospel. Notice he doesn't say they come because of their being Jews, but they come to understand the gospel. They will put their faith in their long-awaited Messiah. The Apostle Paul argues that just as it was a blessing to the Gentiles that Israel stumbled over the, stumbled over the gospel, it will be an even greater blessing when the people of Israel believe and come into the church of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that. So that's a look at those verses. But I want to see is how does this apply to us? How does this affect us today? Are we simply from this passage to understand the future of Israel? To know sort of vaguely how the Gentiles came in? And we'll see later some more, some, as Paul speaks of the Gentiles. Or are we not also to see that what was done and asked of applies to us? That we can look at this and see that what God did at the Jews... To, for the Gentiles' sake, that we can take away something today. And so we want to each, and corporately, ask the following. Do we put our pride aside? Are our lives enticing to those outside the church? And do we see our salvation as truly precious? So let's first begin with, do we put our pride aside? I think we see this in this passage because just as how it was written that Paul doesn't allow the Jews to get prideful over their being grafted in. The Gentiles are reminded that they were engrafted by the plan of God, by allowing his chosen people to stumble. It wasn't due to their greatness or desirability. We who hold the Reformed view of soteriology, theory of the theology of salvation, are to be above all the most humble. I tell people, if you believe in Reformed theology, you should be as humble as there can be because you truly understand your wretchedness. And why would God choose you? If there's anyone here that thinks they know why God chose them because there's something in them, you're missing the point. God chose, chooses us because he wants worshipers, and he's going to change us to be the people that would worship him as they should be. We need to understand that. We also need to understand that we can only believe by God's grace. So when I said you talk to people with these strange views, and then you give them the gospel, and they go, yeah, really? You go, that God hasn't worked in them yet. You know, how many of us, and, and I'm not saying we should advocate for God's law. It's good for everyone. But we shouldn't be surprised when the world does what it does. When we see the absurdities and the vile things going on in the world, we should be disgusted and want change, but we shouldn't be surprised. The world can't do anything else because they are driven by their desires, not by God. And so we should know that, and, be, and we need to see that God uses means to bring us all to him. That should humble us. That God calls us to worship him because he desires to call us, not because we deserve it. Truth is, what do we deserve? Romans 
For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But for those of us that are his, we will see death, provided Christ doesn't return, but not the eternal death that's spoken of. It's by God's grace we have a life eternal. And, just, and not just that we live forever, but even more. We live eternally in the presence of God. We will live eternally in the presence of God and worship Him. There's a book, and I always hesitate lately to mention John Piper's name, because there's some things that are questionable. But he has a book that I consider one of his best. It's called God, the God, God is the Gospel. And he asked the question, which I think is important. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ wasn't there? How do we normally often sell the gospel. I don't even like the word in there, but we sell it by all these benefits you can get. The only benefit that I can promise to a believer is that they will have an eternal relationship with Christ. You can't benefit, earthly-wise, a better life. I've often said that when I became a believer, I, you know, I think Gerardo mentioned about testimonies. I, I don't have one of those. Like, you know, I was in a gutter, God saved me, and I popped up out, and I was fine. But I can tell you that when I became a believer, things got worse. Because I had to take a stand. Now, that wasn't easy, and I didn't necessarily do it correctly in the beginning. But the more you get entrenched and understand what God wants you to do, things can get worse. And often do, and that's actually a good sign. Because the world doesn't like that. And so we need to understand that a heaven without Christ is hell. And so that's the idea that God is the gospel. We're called to worship him, and it starts now. <coughs> that's, a, that's a joy we should have as a believer, that we can come, we can sing songs, we can do all of this, keep in mind, worship is more than singing. And I, I go farther to say worship is, when you leave here today, is acting on his word, as God calls you. Worship doesn't stop, right? It's like we talk about calling, and one of the things I've always appreciated about the Puritans is they had a, this idea of what they call vocation. We live in a world where we think, well, Gerardo's called, or as I was a pastor, I'm called, you're called to this. But everyone else, well, you know what? You're layman, they call it. Guess what? No matter what you do, you are called to that and to be an ambassador for Christ wherever you are. And I would go to argue that not everyone is called to be a pastor. I went through a period, I tried, I pastored a church, and I thought I'd go somewhere else and do it, and I found that God wants me to minister wherever I'm at, in a different field. But guess what? You can do that. Whatever business you're in, wherever you're at, we need to be someone that speaks to Christ. And so we put our pride aside and say, God has called me to worship Him and lift Him up, not myself. We need to understand that clearly. Let us put aside any pride we have in our salvation. I mean, we should, if we go to share the gospel, we should go, brother, sister, I understand where you're at. That's where I was. And I wouldn't believe this either unless God had changed me. We need to truly understand that when we share the gospel, 
The results are God's. Because the person who says, you're crazy, that's a natural response to God's word. Unless God does something on their heart. But we need to live this out. Secondly, we want to say, are our lives enticing to those outside the church? And this is one that I thought of as I saw that the Gentiles were to provoke jealousy among the Jews. And I asked, does my life do the same with the world outside of Christ? And I'm for sure not saying to make my life such that the culture of the day agrees with it. I'm not saying to mold my life so that people outside are enticed by it simply because it looks like what they want. Because it takes God to make them want it. But that can be a means. But instead, that no matter how much the world may hate me in my faith, they have to see something different. In the first century, there are stories of how the Romans, while persecuting the Christians, still saw something different among them. They saw the love they had for one another. One of the greatest examples you have is prison. And you see this with Paul and many others. And if you understand prisons in the first century, they weren't the luxury places we actually have as prisons today. Now, you may not think, me and you, that prison is luxurious. But when you went to prison in the first century... They chucked you in there, and guess who fed you? Your friends, not the prison. You didn't get three square meals, TV, a weight room, health care, do whatever you want. If no one came to feed you, you died. But what amazed people is, is that Christians came, like they did with Paul and others, to go feed them. And what did that do? It marked them out. If you showed up to say, I've got food for Paul, you became allied, allied with Paul. What would the government think? If you had this today, it would be sort of akin if someone got put in prison for doing something, standing up for the gospel, and they had, you had to go give them food, and the government's like anti-Christian, and you showed up and knocked on the door and said, I need to give food to Gerardo. You just put your name on the list. That's what amazed people. That didn't mean they all changed, but that's a means that God can use when he sees this love for one another, even in the midst of the persecution. You know, I have to ask myself, would I do that today? But we also need to live lives that reflect Christ. One that stands for the truth no matter what. That loves truth and hates sin. It does not just hate sin, but most importantly shares the antidote. We're really good at hating sin. And we should. And we need to hate sin for what sin is and truly hate sin. But we don't often offer, don't often offer up an antidote to tell them, well, what can I do? This is the lifestyle I like. But we have the antidote. It's the gospel. The other thing I see is that often in the church, and, and sometimes this is done with good intention, but the church is so malleable, it's more like clay than the rock it was built on. It sees something going on over here and says, ah, we need to entice those people, and they take it the wrong way. There's a saying I, I heard in seminary, and it's true, is that, that whatever you do to bring them in is what you need to do to keep them. 
And by the way, that builds on itself, because you may sing really good music, but then it's not quite as good as this music, and you've got to do better music, or you show videos, or you have whatever it is, it always has to get better. But if that's what's keeping them, it's not God. And again, those things are often done with good intentions. But I'll tell you what I believe is that the world scoffs at the church when they see us do that. They, they laugh. Well, you guys, last week you did this. Now this week you're doing this. You want to just look like this? I believe they see that. And they go, what's the difference? It's not any different than the Kiwanis changing what they do or the Rotary Club or whatever. I mean, often that's what the professing church looks like. We need to be enticing because we live out God's word. Again, lives that reflect love for one another. And when I say love, I mean love defined by God. You know, love defined by God can be uncomfortable, can it? That cat may be going up to a brother or sister and like, uncomfortably going, That's, you're not living what God's asking you to do. And I'm not judging. You know, we talk about not judging. But if I use God's word, that's not judging. That's saying God says you're not supposed to cohabitate and live an adulterous lifestyle. But you are. There's no judging in that. That's bringing out God's word. But that is loving. When you speak to homosexuals, it's loving to tell them they should not live that lifestyle. Let alone the health things, but what it says before God. So we, need to do, we do need to be careful about this idea that we often talk about the love of God. And My view on the love of God is that it is one of his attributes, but the Bible, when it speaks of God is love, that love includes all of his attributes. So that love, when they say God is love, includes his wrath, his judgment, and I'm picking the things that no one likes, his, just who he is, because that's truly love. And again, this enticement may not be spoken of outwardly. The world may not see that and go, oh, you know, I want to be just like you. But inside, God can use that to change them so that he can call his elect. And the third thing I want to look at is, do we see our salvation as truly precious? I add this as Paul in all his writings speaks of the awesomeness of salvation, of how great it is. And I think this flows out of the first two questions we just looked at. Do you see your salvation as just part of life, a life enhancement? Because that's often how we put the gospel for, right? It's like, well, your life's doing pretty good, but want to get a little better? How about the gospel? I remember you took the Coke commercial, right? So just try it or whatever that saying was. I'm like, no, you don't try the gospel. When gospel changes you, it changes you. When God changes your heart, you are changed. But we need to see salvation as life itself. Do you see that what Christ has done on the cross is the ultimate in love? That of dying for one that hated him. Since that's what happened. Christ died on the cross for those who hated him. The Gentiles here were to see the length God would go to engraft them. Because keep in mind, at this time, we would see that you know, the Jews were the ones that had a temple. They worshipped God. They did all of these things and often missed the point. And the Gentiles understood this. And Paul's saying, I let them stumble, not finally fall, so that you could come in. That's precious, that God does that to bring us into his household. 
He had allowed the people he had chosen, and he worked through their stumbling. And I was thinking through this about just things that I, I've, over time, have thought about, but anyone understand and know what the word propitiation means? To me, that's the most precious word I can know. Let alone, I, I can't remember the exact, tra one translation actually uses the word expiation, and hey, I'll touch on that, it's a little different. But propitiation, in 1 John 4.10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So let me put here, and I'm going to mention a word, and I'm going to say it's not wrong, but I personally don't use it anymore. But Christ did not simply pardon or overlook our sins. But that was an actual sacrifice for it. Someone such as a judge or a politician can offer to pardon one's crimes, or he can, he can forgive one's debt, but they do it at no cost to themselves. And thus it's not actually paid for. However, Christ took on the sin of his people. The reason I tend not to use the word pardon, even though... It's a correct word that we often see used as a translation. Is most people's mind a pardon is sort of what the president does, right? Someone's got something wrong, he says, I, I forgive you, your pardon. That didn't cost the president anything. If I just give up your debt, or you go and you have a traffic ticket, and the judge says, You know, today I feel really good giving, I'm going to throw your ticket away. No, he didn't pay your ticket, he threw it away. For what Christ did on the cross is much more than that. With Easter coming, I like to remind people that no matter how brutal you may want, that people want to portray the crucifixion, and it was. Have you seen the Passion? It's an interesting idea that there's actually very little about the cross and what happened on the cross in Scripture. It's only a few verses. And you have a movie where the, we see the beating, and, the, and it's disgusting, and it's actually what happened. But that is nothing as brutal as to have the Father turn away his eyes from the Son and to Christ actually take on the penalty for all the sins of his people. Now that is brutal and something we can't comprehend. Keep in mind, other people died on, the cro on, the, on crosses. Other people were crucified. But the fact that the Son of God was crucified, that the Son of God took on our sin physically took it on and paid for it is something that we can't even, I don't think we, you truly you can't comprehend the amount of pain and suffering that went into that. But we also need to see and find precious that the grace, because we, we're big, right? We're Reformed believers, we say we're saved by grace through faith. And we tend to take the word grace, and I don't think we see it as precious as it should be. Because we see grace it's simply something that saves us in the eternal aspect. But it's God's grace that changes us today. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Can you say amen? amen? That is huge. That is grace. We are changed now. It's not something we, you know, we're saved and we're going to wait for something. God changes us now. Now that change may lead to your discomfort. Often does. But that is part of grace. He provides a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 is that 
give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You know, we often talk about God's law. And there are those, there's the camp that'll say, you know, that's Old Testament. We don't do that. But we're to follow it. You know what the joy and the most precious part is? God has changed our heart to want to follow that. That we should desire to follow it. It's the footsteps, it's the pathway that we follow. I, um, Charles Spurgeon has a sermon and he talks about the law. How before we're Christians, it's what pushes us down. It crunches us to the ground. It pushes us to the cross. But once we become believer, it flips upside the other way, and it's the path we walk. It doesn't disappear. We have a different view of it. But what's precious is that we are changed to follow it, because we have a new heart. And so this all ties back to not being proud of our salvation, but also to make it even more so precious. And it's our view of salvation that impacts, impacts how precious we see it. We simply see salvation as, he, as a final thing we'll see one day that saves us. And, you know, we're up there playing harps or there's those who think they play golf all the time or whatever it is. You don't take it precious. You don't see it as truly precious of what God has done. And as we read scripture, let us see all God has done to secure a people for himself, including sacrificing the son. That he chose us, not based on who we are, or what we have done, or for that matter, what we will do. But he chooses us in him as worshipers. <coughs> We're called to worship God. That's our calling. And worship him in all we do. As we saw today, he chose the Gentiles, not they, him. He chose them to worship him. And he worked through the stumbling of the Jews to expand his kingdom through the Gentiles. That's precious. We need to leave here today understanding the preciousness of our salvation. It's not just part of our life. It's what gives us life. So I pray that these two verses that we've seen today, that in the start of where we're going with these other, to later look at the Gentiles, that you will see that God indeed has a plan for Israel. But in that plan is a plan for his kingdom. Because at the end of the day, that's, they're all in God's kingdom. We're not going to be in heaven and go, well, that's the Jewish land. And there's the Gentile section. No, it's one people. And that God is calling us to be his people. And I also pray that you will leave here asking yourself the three questions we looked at. And if they bring others to mind, all the better. Do we put our pride aside? We truly understand who we are in Christ is because of Christ. Let us ask ourselves, are our lives enticing to those outside the church? Again, not malleable and made to entice them because we're like them. But do they see something different? Do they see our love for one another? Do they see us sticking with what the truth is? That we don't change our mind because, oh, it's uncomfortable. I better not say that. But they see us as firm in what we believe. And keep in mind, if, to be firm in what you believe, what do you need to do? You need to believe something. You need to understand what you believe. So therefore, we need to spend time in God's Word. And I know often we get sort of caught up and we use, like I use the word propitiation, and I believe there are some words that I don't like to change because I know they're like theological words, but they're just so packed. But 
let me put it this way. Everyone here is a theologian. Some may be better than others, but we should all seek to understand God's Word. In theology, is the study of God. Who shouldn't want to study the one we serve and know more about Him so that we know more about what God is doing in our lives? And then lastly, do we see our salvation as truly precious? I think those are tied into the first two. That if we truly understand and put our pride aside and see that there's nothing we should be prideful of, and we see that our lives should be changed, we should see our salvation as precious. Because it's God's calling of us that does that change. It's nothing we do. It's all of God. Father God, I thank you for this day, and I just pray that as we look through these two, two verses, that it uh, was clear, Lord, and where I may have not been clear, that you would be abundantly clear. But I pray that we would leave here today with no pride for who we are in you, that we would live lives that speak to the world, that show who we truly follow, and that would be used by you to draw others to yourself. And I pray that we would truly see our salvation as precious, and we would live as such. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.